Remain standing for our epistle lesson from Romans 3, also our sermon text. Give your ear to God's infallible word. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates, demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just." Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Oh God, we need your help today, as always, to understand these hard things, these hard to understand things in Paul. We, we know and rest and the fact that you have inspired it and made it difficult for us to understand so that we do have to work and meditate and read and think and communion with you and one another and your spirit. And so help us today. Help us as we think on these things, as we think about the gospel, as we think about Paul's message to the Roman Christians, Roman churches made up of Jews and Gentiles, Give us ears to hear and convict us. Convict us to be doers of the word. Convict us so that we love your law. That we love your commandments. That we love your precepts and so that we delight in them and so that we find life in them. So that they revive our soul. And so we need your spirit to be in us, working mightily to accomplish this. We ask for it, for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. In John's gospel, Jesus says in various places, things like this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John 5, 3 says something similar. This is love for God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. People often claim to love God even when they don't keep his commandments. Perhaps you, like me, have known many confessing Christians, baptized Christians, who profess their love for God while their lives show no evidence of obedience 
to God and his law. Over the years, I've talked to many parents who believe that their rebellious adult children are saved. Their their children have no desire to keep God's word, no love of the things of the Lord, for the things of the Lord. Yet these parents insist that their children love God, perhaps because they were baptized, perhaps because they raised their hand or walked the aisle or did appear to be walking with God and loving God for a time. And so therefore they still love God and are on the path to heaven in spite of not keeping God's commandments at all. I've, I've heard professing believers speak of the doctrine of eternal security and, and how they take comfort that once God saves you, you're always saved. I take comfort in that. You should take comfort in that. But sometimes the more they talk, when I hear people talking about this, the more it becomes apparent that for them, the doctrine of eternal security or once saved, always saved is just a license to live in unrepentant sin. The theological name for this destructive way of thinking is antinomianism. Okay, we're going to learn a, 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 maybe a big word, new word for some of you. The word antinomian comes from two Greek words. Anti, which means against, and namos, which means law. So a- antinomian means against the law, against God's law is, is what it refers to. Antinomians believe that good works and obeying God's commandments aren't necessary for the saved person. You can do with or without it. Now, it's hard to find anyone who will identify as an antinomian. Uh, Most Christians know that they're at least supposed to try to obey God's law. So you don't make that a public, you don't put that on your social media, you know, identity thing. uh, Antinomian. But you know you're talking to an antinomian when when they say things like, "I, I know I haven't been a faithful Christian by which they mean I, I realize that for decades I have been producing no fruit and, and getting further and further away from the Lord. But I love God and I'm thankful for God's free forgiveness. Or my friend, or you could say my spouse or my child, my friend is living a godless life, breaking all of God's commandments, running away from the Lord in every way, but I know that deep down in her heart she still loves God. The spirit of antinomianism is alive and well in the Christian church. It was also alive and well among the Jews of Paul's day. And that's what he is addressing here. They thought that being Jewish made up for breaking God's law, for being unfaithful. They figured that being circumcised, being descendants of Abraham covered a multitude of unrepentant sins, or at least the ones that they recognized as sins. And so to understand the first century Jews, you must realize that they were at once, at the same time, they were antinomians and legalists. Okay, Those might seem like opposites, like they're antithetical to one another, against each other, but they're not. They, they, they come together. As antinomians, they minimized their sinfulness when they broke God's law. It's not that important. He'll overlook it because we're special. As legalists, 
they tried to work for God's favor by means of the law. And, and so there's a paradox here, seeming paradox, that exists in us all. To understand yourself, you must realize that the same contradiction exists in you. You are an antinomian and a legalist at the same time. All of us are. As antinomians, we minimize our sinfulness when we break God's law. We make excuses, right? We become more important than God and his law. As legalists, we try to work for God's favor. We think that the things that we do can make God love us more, accept us more, and all that. Sinclair Ferguson calls antinomianism and legalism non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. They are both opposed to God's grace more than they are opposed to one another. They're opposed together against God's grace. And each of these tendencies exists in each of us. We have to recognize this if we're gonna make progress in our spiritual, or in our walk with Christ, just as they existed in the Jews of Paul's day. In Romans 2, Paul indicted the Jews for their antinomianism. He, he condemned their disregard for God's commandments. For example, in Romans 2.13, he wrote, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be declared righteous. See, they were hearers, and they thought that was enough, but they weren't doing because they were antinomian. This is the message that every antinomian needs to hear. It's not just here. You can't just be a hearer. You must be a doer. Then in 2.23, Paul addresses both their legalism and their antinomianism. You who boast in the law dishonor God through your transgression of the law. So they confess with their mouth that they love God's law, but their antinomian lives prove that they actually hate God's law. They're against God's law. The climax of Paul's argument against the hypocritical antinomianism of the Jews comes at the end of Romans 2. We looked at it last time. There Paul insists that being an ethnic Jew is really basically unimportant. What matters is becoming an inward Jew whose heart has been circumcised by God. Paul really offends the Jews there, doesn't he? Those last five verses in Romans 2 stepped on toes. He tells them that the uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's commandments show that they are the true Jews. They are the true circumcision because they've been circumcised by the Holy Spirit in their hearts. See, the Jews took pride in their physical Jewishness, their circumcision and their laws and their Sabbaths and their, all of that was really important, their identity as Jew. And Paul's saying none of that matters because these Gentiles over here have nothing to do with all of that religious stuff. They are the true Jews, the true circumcision. Only those who keep God's commandments can claim that they belong to God, that can claim that they're actually a real Jew, a real Israelite, and you can only keep God's commandments if God has circumcised your heart. So this, that brings us to our passage today. It brings us to Romans 3, and Paul can anticipate the objections. Now, Romans 3, 1 to 8 
is considered by most interpreters and preachers to be one of the most difficult passages in Romans. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached a lot of sermons, said it's not only probably the most difficult in Romans, but maybe the most difficult in the New Testament for him to preach. Because it's, it's, it's kind of tangly. He, Paul doesn't give us all of his assumptions and, and what he's thinking and why he makes these conclusions or who's asking the questions. So we have to try to figure it out and read it over and over and think about it and figure out what he's saying. Okay, so those of you who have ever taught in a classroom, I know there's some teachers here, retired teachers, ex-teachers, current teachers, teaching Sunday school. Uh, You know that after you've been teaching for a while, you can begin to anticipate many of the questions that your students will ask, right? A veteran teacher who's been teaching the same subject matter for over 20 years can predict with almost 100% accuracy what questions his or her students will ask. And at what point in the lesson they will, that, that they will get asked. Rabbi Paul, teacher Paul, has been teaching and preaching his gospel in synagogue after synagogue and in church after church for over 20 years, over two decades at this point. And he's learned to anticipate certain objections, certain questions, uh, certain, at certain points in his teaching. When he says certain things, I know that the Jews are going to ask this. So his, teachings has, his teaching has raised the same questions. They've sparked the same wrong conclusions, we could say. His gospel has been regularly twisted by the ignorant and unstable, Peter says. And each time they tend to twist it in pretty much the same way, which is to say to their own destruction. We've already seen Paul stop to address along the way some of these questions. We've, we've found him repeatedly pausing, especially in chapter 2, pausing in his argument to answer questions or to dismiss false assumptions, false conclusions. But Paul does this in a big way in Romans 3, 1 to 8. He knows that his climactic conclusion at the end of chapter 2 the, the bit on circumcision and true circumcision, true Jew, that, that's, that ruffled some Jewish feathers. And, and, and he's heard it all before. So he takes an eight-verse detour at the beginning of Romans 3 to answer some common objections that he's heard. And, you know, he's formulating these in his own words. But it's, it, it's, called a, it's called a diatribe. That that's the literary device he's using. It's a, he's, he's got this imaginary uh, interlocutor, this person he's talking with, uh, but it's real questions. These are real objections. And his detour is dense with theological subtleties and implications that need to be unpacked. And that's what Paul does, by the way. It's good to know this, especially in Romans. He packs his sentences and his paragraphs full of theological substance. He doesn't spell everything out. He he packs them. So to understand what he's saying in any one passage, first, you've got to read it over and over again. And second, you've you've got to have a firm grasp on the whole book, on the context because he brings things in, not only that he said, but that he's going to say, okay? And so he, he's, he's, a, 
He expects you to read it several times so that when you read it the second time, the third time, the fourth time, you're remembering, okay, I know from later what, what he's getting at here. It's not meant to be read once like a newspaper. And there's no passage that this is truer of than Romans 3, 1 to 8. In these verses, Paul assumes that we're not only familiar with, with Romans 2, we just came from, but also that we're familiar with his theological arguments elsewhere in chapter 6, for example, and especially in that famous passage, chapters 9 to 11. More on that in a minute. Now, on your outline, and, and you, this is one of those that you probably do need the outline to get the most out of it. The, the first point is a summary of the previous passage at the end of Romans 2. Paul, Paul's point there in verses 25 to 29, that last paragraph in chapter 2, was that God is impartial to everyone. He will praise inwardly circumcised Jews alone. Those are the only, only ones on judgment day that he will praise. In other words, Jews stand in the same position before God as Gentiles. And to, to, to be saved on the last day, to be praised by God on the last day, when Jesus returns, Jews and Gentiles alike must be circumcised by the Spirit in their hearts. And so this leads to the first objection. Then what's the point in being a Jew? Do ethnic Jews have a saving advantage at all? That's a reasonable question coming off of chapter 2. Now, if you followed Paul's argument in chapter 2, when he asks that question at the beginning of chapter 3, what then is the advantage of the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision, you're thinking the answer is going to be none. None in every way. There, there's, no, there's no advantage, no profit to being a physically circumcised Jew. It, it, you know, wasn't that your point in chapter 2? But Paul surprises us when he says in verse 2, much in every way. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, in the New King James, it says chiefly. Uh, the, reason they, the reason they did that is what, what Paul actually does here is he starts a list first, but he doesn't finish it. Well, at least not here. And so uh, it's neater, tidier to say, well, he just means chiefly because just, he just talks about one thing. We expect a list, but, but it's a list of one. And the blessing to the Jews that he lists here is that they were entrusted with the oracles or the promises, the very words of God. And he continues the list in chapter 9. So uh, puts it on pause for a while. Turn, turn in your Bible to chapter 9. I'll show you where the list continues. Real quick, flip over to Romans 9. Many of the ideas in this sermon text get picked up and expanded as I said in Romans 9 to 11. This is one example. We'll look at more examples of this later in the sermon and next week when we come back to this passage. So look at Romans 9, 4. Paul speaks of his countrymen, quote, who are Israelites, to whom pertain or to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God or the worship of God, and the promises and the next verse says that they have the fathers as well. And that's, so that's the rest of the list. Paul, Paul does finally get back to it. And, and Paul, we need to remember, Paul has this list in mind in chapter 3 when he says in verse 2, first of all, they were entrusted with the very words, the promises, we could say, the oracles of God. 
And these words of God include all his promises to his people, the ones to whom he gave the word. Specifically, they include God's promise to save Israel. And that's implicitly highlighted here. That's the promise, you see, that's at stake. Is God's promise to say in his word, in his oracles to Israel, that, that he would save them. So Paul wants to make it clear that he believes God's pledge to Israel still stands. It has not been revoked. Chapter 2 might have given the impression that God's pledge to save ethnic Jews has been revoked. Or perhaps just fully fulfilled in the church somehow. So that the ethnic Jews really have no place or promise in the plan of God. Chapter 2 might have given that impression. And many of Paul's listeners had gotten that impression before, no doubt. And, and no doubt Paul had addressed this wrong impression before. When people asked Paul whether ethnic Jews have any advantage at all in salvation history, he, he, he came out, he, he realized, I mean, it's kind of a yes and no answer, but he says, yes, they were given the scriptures which promised their salvation. And God keeps all of his promises. He keeps his word always. But, but there is a problem. Israel doesn't look like the saved people of God. Israel has been unfaithful. At least that's what Paul said in Romans 2, and it's undeniable too. Even, even his Jewish interlocutors that they're objecting, even they have to recognize that most of Israel's history is a history of unfaithfulness. But Paul claimed in chapter 2 that Jews are just as corrupt, just as dead in their sins as the Gentiles are. They've they haven't kept up their end of the bargain. They're, they're into the covenant. And it's a covenant that God established with them and their fathers. And they're not keeping it. And so this leads to that second objection. So Paul, does their unfaithfulness that you are big on, does their unfaithfulness undo God's promise to save them? Does their unfaithfulness mean that God isn't going to save them after all? Which makes him unfaithful. He formulates this objection in his own words in verse 3. I'll read it from the handout, from that translation. What if some of them were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it nullify his promises, make, making him unfaithful to what he said he'd do? And Paul's answer is, no way. God remains faithful even though the Jews, every last one of them, is in bondage to sin. That's what he says in verse 4. May it never be. Let God be true, though every human being is a liar. Now, it, it might help at this point if I paraphrase and expand both the objection in verse 3 and Paul's answer in verse 4. In essence, the Jewish Objectors are saying this in verse 3. So Paul, what, which is it? Are the Jews under the judgment of God because of their unfaithfulness? As you stated so emphatically in chapter 2. Or are they under the covenant blessings of God? Because they are his chosen people. You seem to be saying, you seem to be leaning in the direction of the Jews are under God's judgment. 
because of their unfaithfulness, but that means God's promise to save them has been nullified. In other words, Paul, your condemnation of the Jews is actually a condemnation of God. If the Jews have been unfaithful, as you say, then God has been unfaithful to his pledge to save his people, Israel, ethnic Israel. And then Paul responds in verse 4, no way, not even close. May it never be. Certainly not. Lots of different translations of that phrase. God forbid. That's impossible. The, The unrighteousness of man can never in a million years make God unrighteous. That's not how it works. The Jews can't sin enough to make God unrighteous. By by definition, God is righteous and true. He's true and he'll always be true, even though every Jew, as well as every Gentile, all of mankind, every man who has ever been born, is by nature a God-hating liar. And there he actually is affirming that it's actually true. Not just if every man is a liar, but every man, every person is actually a God-hater, a liar. And that doesn't make God unfaithful at all. Now, of course, now if, you're, if you're thinking about this critically from the mind of the, from the, from the objectors, you're, you're recognizing that verse 4 doesn't really totally answer the objection in verse 3. Paul's emphatic, may it never be, in verse 4, it doesn't explain how God remains faithful even though the Jews are unfaithful. It, it denies that God is unfaithful, but it doesn't explain how. But Paul does explain how this works elsewhere. And we're going we're gonna to look at that. In, in Romans 11, you can turn to Romans 11, Paul speaks of a time in the future, when all Israel, all the Jews, all, at least all of those who are alive at that time, will repent and turn to Christ. So, so go with me to Romans 11, and we'll read it together. Starting in verse 25, we'll stop at verse 32. And Paul assures his readers that a time of salvation is coming for ethnic Israel. And there's no way to get around that this is ethnic Israel, because he's, he's comparing Israel with the Gentiles. It's just really clear that he's talking about the physical Jews. Romans eleven twenty five. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The ESV says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's from Isaiah. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they, the Jews are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means they're irreversible. God's election and calling of Israel cannot be undone. Verse 30, for as you were once disobedient to God, 
as you, as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, through the Jews' disobedience. Even so, these, these Jews, also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. And that mercy that he's shown the Gentiles is going to uh, provoke jealousy, provoke them to jealousy. That's how this is going to work. And when they become jealous, uh, they're going to turn to Christ. That's our Messiah. And they're going to come in. Verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all. In other words, and by the way, what I'm talking about here, some of you might be thinking, you know, some flag, yellow flags, red flags might be going up. Is, is the pastor some kind of, you know, Israel-loving dispensationalist or something like that? And actually, this is, I'm, I'm teaching you here what the Bible says, what I think it says, and what the, what the Westminster Confession uh, says, what the, what the Reformers largely believe. This is not anything abnormal. But, but in other words, the Jews are going to be saved. God hasn't forgotten about his people or his pledge to save them. He's, he's going to be faithful to his promise. At, at some point in the future, God's going to lift that partial hardening. He's going to give them eyes so that they can see. He's going to circumcise their hearts, and all Israel will be saved. And Peter tells us, in a sense... When this is going to happen, when, the, when this mass conversion of Jews is going to take place, flip back one book in your Bibles to the book of Acts, or scroll up on your Bibles to the book of Acts, which is right before Romans, and, and go to the third chapter. Acts 3. There Peter is preaching to the Jews at the temple. and It says in Solomon's portico. In verse 12, Paul addresses them, men of Israel. And then he proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection to them. In verse 15, Peter accuses them of killing Jesus, the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And, and so skip down to verse 17, in the middle of his sermon there, and we'll read through verse 21. And keep in mind as we read that we're asking the question of when all Israel will be saved. When will, when will this mass conversion of Jews take place that Paul talk, talks about in Romans 11? The answer is in Acts 3, verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you Jews did it in ignorance. You killed Jesus in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Okay, verse 19, here's, here's, here's the money verse. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration, the times of the restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So, so, so let's home in on verses 19 to 21. So Peter is calling the Jews to repentance, those that crucified Christ. He's calling them to repent for what they did. And if they repent, 
if, if, if there is this mass conversion to Christ, Paul, Peter believes three things will happen. Number one, their sins will be blotted out. That's the first half of verse 19. That makes sense. Sins are forgiven. Verse two, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. That's the second half of verse 19. Number three, in verse 20, God will send Jesus back to earth. The return of Christ and the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord are the same thing. They happen at the same time. Then verse 21 adds further explanation. Jesus must stay in heaven. Heaven must hold on to him, must keep receiving him until it's time to restore all things, until the restoration of all things. So Peter is convinced that at some point in the future, Israel will repent and come to Christ. And Peter believes that this mass conversion of Jews will essentially trigger the return of Christ, in a sense. It, it, when all Israel is saved, we can say this, when all Israel is saved, the new creation is right around the corner in a particular kind of way. Not that we're going to know exactly when and how that's going to happen, what exactly it's going to look like, to what extent. It's not like we can time things. There's mystery here to what this exactly is going to look like in the fullness of it or how long it's going to take, you know, what kind of a time period this is going to happen over. But Peter, like Paul, would have loved to see this happen in his own lifetime. Peter and Paul both preached to the Jews with the hope that it could happen, that God could work this in their own lifetime. It, perhaps it might even happen through their preaching. Peter's not, you know, he's not preaching this with the expectation that it won't happen. Now, of course, it didn't happen in response to their preaching in the first century. God's partial hardening of the Jews is still in effect today, nearly 2,000 years later. And this means that the fullness of the Gentiles hasn't come in. But when the fullness of the Gentiles does come in, God will lift the blinders from Israel and all Israel will be saved by faith in Christ. This is not a salvation apart from Christ. You know, as if, the, as if the Jews can have their own way to God, their own salvation track. No, it's salvation by faith in Jesus alone. And in this way, God will remain true to his promise to save Israel. In your outline, the second major point summarizes Paul's argument in those first four verses in Romans 3. And I'm referring to Roman numeral 2. God is faithful to his promise. He will save ethnic Jews by bringing them to Christ. But this leaves one lingering question. What about all the Jews who don't repent? Does their unfaithfulness call into question God's faithfulness? His faithfulness to his people and his promises? Paul anticipates this objection and addresses it halfway through verse 4. He kind of anticipates it and then he addresses it in the second half of verse 4. Just as it is written that you may be proved righteous in your words and may triumph when you judge. Okay, and I need, to know, need you to notice a little uh, a difference here. In, in my translation and the New King James on this point, and the very end, I, I say, when you judge, 
and, and other translations put it this way too, like the, the, the Christian Standard Bible and the NIV. I think they're correct here over against the ESV, the New King James, and, and others. Those other translations say that when, that you may triumph when you are judged. So when God is judged, he triumphs. The, the word here, the verb here, it could go either way grammatically. It could be a passive, but it could also be a middle. So in other words, a, a more active verb. It can go either way. So we have to use context. And, and the reason that it's better to go with the active, sort of the more active translation is that Paul is translating the Hebrew, and the Hebrew is very clearly active. It's when God judges. And so it makes more sense to assume that he's just being faithful to that Hebrew and saying when he will triumph when, when he judges. And remember, the small capital letters in the translation represent quotes from the Old Testament. And so in verse 4, Paul quotes Psalm 51, which is King David's confession of his double sin, at least double, at least two, of, of adultery and murder. So, so, so David, the quintessential Jew, right, doesn't, you, you don't get any more Jewish than King David. He says that God has the right to judge him. David doesn't claim that his Jewishness should spare him somehow from God's judgment. In fact, God's judgment of David's sin actually, David says, proves God's righteousness. So, so he's, he's admitting and confessing that he, even my sin glorifies God because when he judges me, he's right. I'm wrong. He's righteous and I'm not can't get away from glorifying God in that sense. So, so Paul's point in quoting Psalm 51 is that the faithfulness of God doesn't just include his promise to save the Jews. It also includes his condemnation of unfaithful Jews. God will be proved true and righteous when he judges unrighteous covenant breakers. And that's not just true of the Jews. It's true of all covenant breakers including the ones, including baptized members of Christ's body. Paul here is grappling with the Jewish assumption, the Jewish conviction at this point that in his day that God's righteousness somehow guarantees that Israel is immune from God's judgment. They're, they're, a, they're beyond or above God's law. But Paul has a different idea of how God's righteousness works. In his view, God's righteousness is focused, and, and hear this, this is, one of, this is one of Paul's major points in the whole book of Romans. God's righteous is, righteousness is focused not on Israel, but on himself, on his own name and his own glory. Missing this is a universal human problem. God's righteousness his faithfulness is centered not on me and you and me, not on Israel. It's centered on himself, his faithfulness to himself, to his own name, to glorifying his own name. So, so God doesn't exist for Israel. Israel exists for God. 
God's righteousness at its core is not about his commitment to Israel. He is committed. We've seen that. That's not what it's about at the core. Fundamentally, God's righteousness is his commitment always to act in accordance with his own character, his own righteous character. And that, certainly, and that certainly means that God will uphold his promises, all of his promises, every last one of them, to the Jews and to us, right, and to all of creation. We can bank on that. Now, one of those promises is that he will bless his people when they obey, and someday all Israel will obey and be blessed by God. But another promise of God is that he will punish his people when they disobey. Remember that? That's also in the covenant. It's also one of the stipulations, one of the promises, one of the guarantees. So when God causes all Israel to repent at the end of history, he'll be keeping his promise. And when he punishes countless unrepentant Jews, and when his promise, he'll be keeping his word, keeping his covenant obligations. God remains true even if every Jew between the cross of Christ and the conversion of Israel at the end of history is a lying Christ-hater. God remains true even though every Jew and every human is a liar, a sinner who can do no good. The transition in the second half of verse 4 it, takes us, in, it take, takes us in a slightly different direction. Paul's overall point in verses 5 to 8 is that God is true to himself. He will judge ethnic Jews who do not come to Christ. He makes this, he makes this point by addressing two objections, two more objections, which we'll look at next week. And so... I, I, I want to leave you today with one meditation based on this passage. God's faithfulness is not centered on you. It's centered on himself. God's righteousness is not your slave. God is not your genie. It, he, he, it, his righteousness is a slave to his own character to himself. God is true to you, but he's not primarily, he's not first, he's not foremost true to you. Above all, he's true to himself. You see, God can be glorified by your life no matter where you end up eternally. This is, this is sobering, but it's true. We, we, we gotta have this in our minds, or we lose sight of God's glory, his otherness, right? We bring him down to our level, or we put ourselves above him. In fact, he will be glorified by your life, no matter where you end up eternally. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, including your eternal destiny. And so th just think about that. Just let that sink in. It should be quite sobering. And you should realize that you probably don't think about that enough. That's what it means to fear God. One of the, one of the things it means is to, 
to fear God this way. God loves you, and he loves you in a way that you can't comprehend either, but you're not the focal point of reality. He alone is. He, he always has been, and he always will be. There will never be a time when he won't be. I'll put it even more provocatively. God doesn't exist to forgive you for breaking his law. He will forgive. He, he will forgive everyone who forsakes his sins and turns to Christ and comes to the cross with nothing in their hands. And in fact, I'll go further. He takes deep, deep delight in doing that and in, in forgiving repentant sinners. And he is gracious. He is merciful. Even when he looks at our good works, our obedience, he's merciful there as well. But, but that forgiveness, that graciousness is not why he exists. He exists to be glorified and you exist to glorify him. And there are two ways that you can glorify God. Either you can glorify him by fearing him and keeping his commandments, which is the path of joy. That's, that's, the, that's the preferred path, right? Or like Pharaoh and most of the Jews, most of humanity at this point, you can glorify God by being a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, whose purpose is to make known the riches of God's glory for vessels of mercy, to make that known for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Both vessels, both kinds of vessel are prepared beforehand. Each one is prepared beforehand. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, vessels of mercy prepared for God's glory in a different kind of way. You see, God is God and he will be glorified. So, so think about that the next time you are tempted to trifle with his law, with his commandments. Those are the commandments of Almighty God to whom you must answer, to whom you are accountable, who is holy and majestic. The next time you're tempted to lie your way out of trouble or to lie your way up the ladder or to disrespect your parents or to click on the website that you shouldn't go to or to tell an obscene joke at work to get a good laugh from the guys. Remember that you're being tempted to put yourself at the center of reality. You're being tempted to make yourself God. You're being tempted to scorn God and his law. Don't be an antinomian. Don't be against God's law. Don't be against God. Love God by keeping his commandments. The next time you're tempted to cheat on your taxes or to defy the civil authorities without good cause, you're not just being tempted to break man's ordinances, you're being tempted to break the law of God. That's what you are rationalizing. The good news is that God is gracious in all this, and he loves to forgive. He even takes pleasure 
and saving his sworn enemies, which all of us were, all of us once were. Those who hate his law, which all of us once did. But he always does this. He always works this salvation, this grace, by circumcising the hearts of his enemies, by filling his enemies with a desire to keep his commandments. The law of God is a reflection of God's character. Remember that this week, that God is God and you're not. God's law is supreme and you're not. God's commandments are fixed points and you're not. You must bend and break and conform yourself to God and his law. Not the other way around. Don't be an antinomian. I close with James 4, 7 to 10. (coughs) Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you do lift us up. Help us to humble ourselves before you and your law. To not hate your law, but to love it, to delight in it. So that it does revive our souls. Oh God, we confess that we are impure, that we are sinners, that we are double-minded. And so help us to grieve our sins. To mourn our unrighteousness. And to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. We need your help. We need your spirit, the spirit who circumcised our hearts to work this out in us. And so please do it even today and the rest of this week for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and his glory. Amen.